1: Chancellor Rishi Sunak faced harsh criticism this week for the non-dom tax status of his wife as the UK's cost of living crunch hit home. A chancellor who says to the British public that he will tax them, he's introduced 15 tax
2: rises, and he says all of this is necessary, there's no option. If it now transpires that his wife has been using schemes to reduce her own tax, Then I'm afraid that is breathtaking hypocrisy.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be delving into two messes the government has got itself into. The tax affairs of Rishi Sunak's wife, which you heard Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer criticise at the beginning, and the long-awaited energy security strategy – Will the Chancellor's spouse be forced to give up her non-dom status? And why did Boris Johnson shy away from tough new targets for onshore wind farms? Associate Editor and columnist Stephen Bush will dissect, along with our energy correspondent, Natalie Thomas. And later, we'll be looking at the decision to privatise Channel 4. We'll be exploring what this tells us about the government's so-called culture wars, and whether it's about ideology or pragmatism. Media editor Alex Barker will discuss with the FT's assistant editor Janine Gibson. Thank you all for joining. Rishi Sunak hasn't had the easiest political time lately. First, the Chancellor faced criticism for his spring statement, which was widely seen not to have matched the scale of the cost of living crisis, prompting a backlash from Conservative MPs and right-leaning newspapers. Then... This week, it was revealed that his wife, Ascarta murty has non-DOM tax status in the UK and has done for several years. Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, has defended the Chancellor's position and saying it was a non-story.
2: The Chancellor's been incredibly transparent in the declaration of interests when he became a minister. The Treasury's been, the uh, department in which he works in, has been very, uh, knows about all those affairs. and And there is a measure of transparency, and he's been very honest about that, and I think as far as I'm concerned, that's 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 uh, good enough for me, and I think that's we should move on from that story.
1: Well, Stephen Bush, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you on for the first and certainly not last time. Quasi, Kwasang saying, I think we can all move on. It's certainly not happening as we're recording this on Friday morning. It feels as if the row is actually getting worse. So it first came out on Thursday that Miss murty has non-dom status. And non-dom status has this special place in British politics, doesn't it, where it really seems to rile people. Well, yeah, I think partly because it, it's acquired within the life
3: of sort of this Conservative project, it's acquired this sort of politically temic status because it was, well, the promise of action on on non-domiciled residents, which would allow them to have an inheritance tax cut, which saw off the threat of an early election in 2007, which might, of course, brought a very early end to the Cameron project of getting the Conservatives back in office. Instead, they saw off that early election, they went on to win the election when it was held in 2010. And I think, so it, it partly kind of speaks to the sort of mythology of the party in its modern form, but also it all comes back to the slightly anxious relationship the modern Conservative Party has with wealth and the country's traditional areas of economic strength, right? The thing I think is really interesting about this row so far is no Conservative has made the argument that non-domiciled status is perfectly fair, perfectly legal, good for the United Kingdom, which um, I would argue is A, not a hard argument, but also um, it's a Damn sight easier argument to make than it's
1: no one's business what the wife of the finance minister does with her tax affairs. Well, that's the exact place where we've got to at the time we're recording this. This came out on Thursday evening, report first by The Independent that Miss Murty held non-dom tax status. The Treasury and her spokesperson came out and said essentially that this was all to do with her Indian citizenship. And the FT reported that several tax experts said that is disingenuous. Nothing I think in the leading article in The Times also suggested that was the case, that it was more of a choice of hers to have non-dom tax status. And Rishi Sunak has come out swinging against this in quite strong language, he gave an interview to The Sun where he said his wife loves her country like I love mine and said, essentially it is all a smear. But the fact is, Stephen, the cabinet office knew about this when Rishi Sunak first became a minister in 2018. The Treasury have also said they knew about it. So... It must be relevant for him to say it's not relevant. If it wasn't relevant, how did the Cabinet Office and the Treasury know? And it's been pointed out the ministerial code says the word family four times in it. So clearly it does matter despite what he says. The big clue, as you say, as
3: to why it matters, is that he disclosed it. Also, right, we all have to disclose our, you know, various conflicts of interest, that's right and proper, with our employer. There's another sort of, I think, important political angle. At some point, the first... British Asian will be elected Prime Minister. Almost certainly they will be a Conservative. And when they do it, they are going to, you know, just as, you know, when you see Kami Badenoch speak or when you see Sadiq Javid speak or when you see Sadiq Khan talking about, you know, how wonderful London... If you're an ethnic minority politician, regardless of, you know, what country you're in, so obviously if you're Guy Scott in Zambia, right, you have to go on a bit more about how much you love your country than if you're part of the ethnic majority. I simply cannot conceive of a situation in which you could successfully be elected as an ethnic minority in any country in which you are giving interviews with some of our most influential tabloids, saying, I get and it's a bit confusing that my partner's actual home is another country. Now, yes, that's not fair. Yes, that um this is not would not be a political problem in of the same danger to his own ambitions if it were, you know, George Osborne, Philip Hammond. However, it just is the reality. And one of the problems and he's created for himself with this, it's a smear, it's not relevant, is then it reopens, I think, a bunch of, of quite insidious stuff about being a successful ethnic minority politician in any country.
1: Now, Rishi Sunak is obviously trying to shut this down, Stephen, by simply saying that everything's been followed. And again, I don't think anyone's talking about any laws being broken here, all the rules have been followed. And I think it comes to your point here that actually, it's more about a sort of moral thing than an actual legalistic one. Now, I personally think that this is unsustainable and that's a view that's shared by Conservative Home the popular grassroots website where they've written an editorial on Friday morning that this situation cannot continue because you can't have a chance to who, as we should say, has risen taxes this week with the national insurance rise to their highest level in six decades. At the same time, his own household, which, as we said, is part of his position, not least the fact that obviously he lives in Downing Street himself. He's had to declare those conflicts of interest. How can this resolve? itself, because it feels as if Rishi Sunak is not going to back down. The interview he gave The Sun was pretty punchy on this, and it doesn't get that sense that he's going to say she's going to change her status or become tax domiciled in the UK. And it feels as if it's such an easy target to give Labour that to It's one rule for them and one rule for us. And particularly when you've got a chancellor who is so wealthy, probably the wealthiest member of this parliament and of the last several parliaments, to have an open go there, that someone you'd imagine in 10 Downing Street is going to say, hang on a minute, we need to do something about this, because politically, it just looks awful.
3: In nominal terms, he's the richest MP ever, although you have various sort of MPs who are sort of effectively wholly owned subsidiaries of the East India Company, who in real terms were much richer than than Rishi is. I think, you know, the Conservative Home editorial is fascinating to me because it basically goes, look, you have two options. His wife takes a financial hit, that's politics, or he resigns. Now, again, what I think is fascinating is presumably we wouldn't be saying that if she were running a British corporation, or indeed, one of her, her various business interests had benefited from the super deduction. Presumably, then, the Conservative Party would be saying the super deduction is great, here's why we do it. And it. yeah, I do think it speaks to this weird problem. We have a chancellor who loves to talk about the fact he's he's into low tax, yet doesn't even have political confidence in making an argument for this tax approach in his own household. I don't think that those are the only two options available. I'm really struck and you, yeah, you, know, you will have seen this too, right? Yeah, when you're on doors covering election or sitting in on focus groups, there's always this kind of thing where people will say, what we really need is a, a businessman to get involved. I was once sitting in a focus group where they were asked to say one good thing about Donald Trump. They all laughed nervously, were silent for a while. And someone said, I guess and he's a businessman. And they all went, oh, yeah, it's good. And he's a businessman. And I think that, one of the many ways that thus far Rishi has handled the politics of this badly is he's created the idea, even in the Conservative Party, that surely the most painless option, which is just to go, yeah, I'm a very successful businessman, so is my wife. We have this tax regime in order to attract very successful people. It works. Here's why. That he doesn't feel he can make that argument is, I think, the most important thing about
1: all of this. And I think finally on this, Stephen... It also shows, I think, potentially flawed political judgment by the Chancellor. And I think this is one thing even his supporters in the Conservative Party have questioned because he only came into Parliament in 2015 and has a meteoric rise much quicker than I think any other Chancellor in recent history. And, you know, it's not that long ago that I was sitting on this podcast, you were talking about the real chance of Rishi Sunak resigning, challenging Boris Johnson and potentially being the next Prime Minister. What it has kind of exposed in a way is that I think maybe either the advice advice he's receiving always his political instincts aren't particularly great because if they were you'd be saying that this just looks awful and you solve it and if you had again a chance to like George Osborne who had a very keen eye on how things look how you present things and the politics of things they would have moved much more quickly on this and this round may move on but I think that sort of question about his political judgment is one that's going to stick one of the reasons why Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister is even
3: a Conservative MP who liked Rashid would say yeah this guy hasn't been around very long we see when we look at Labour where they've similarly elected someone who's only been in politics for five years who'd had a very successful pre-politics career has a nice head of hair etc cetera, etc cetera. and suddenly actually you're watching Keir Starmer almost have to learn how to be a politician live before our eyes and lots of Conservative MPs were looking at Rishi and going do we really want that to be us
1: and they're, now they're looking at this and going yeah wow we really didn't want that to be us. <laughs> Well, of course, this row about Rishi Sunak's wife comes at a time that the cost of living crunch is really hitting the government. And this was highlighted by the energy security strategy. Natalie Thomas, it's great to have you back. We had this long awaited paper that we discussed last week on the pod. Since that came out, what have we actually learned about the government strategy?
4: Well, let's start off with the positive. The strategy did contain some new targets. So for years, the government has been trying to bring forward new nuclear power stations as the old ones have been retiring, as we previously discussed. And in this strategy, for the first time in my memory, covering the energy beat since 2017, they put forward a big Gigawatt target for nuclear. They said that they wanted 24 gigawatts of new nuclear by 2050. They also upped a target for offshore winds to 50 gigawatts by the end of this decade. They had previously said 40 gigawatts. So there were some positives there. However, the strategy was badged the energy security strategy, and lots of the government's opponents, the Labour Party, but independent academics and some energy groups such as Eon did point out that this strategy didn't actually do much to improve the UK's energy security over the next decade. What it was was actually a fairly good blueprint on how we were going to reach net zero by 2050. But in the short term, it does very little to actually improve both energy security and crucially lower household bills because, you know, that's the context against which we have to put all of this at the moment. Energy is suddenly becoming very interesting to every man and woman on the street because we are seeing huge increases in our bills. 54% in April, to £2,000 a year on average per household. And we're expecting another big increase in October when Britain's energy price cap has increased. Analysts are suggesting it could go up to anywhere between 2600 and £3,000 per household on average. Now, remember, that's an average. So if you have lots of children or you have a particularly leaky home, it could be well beyond that. Now,
1: one thing that was clearly missing from this strategy that Natalie was onshore wind, and this has been the subject of quite a big political row within the Conservative Party, and Labour's Ed Miliband, who's their, their climate spokesperson, had this to say about it. And what's happened here is that the chief whip of the Tory party, who's one of the people who's a a complete oppositionalist
2: to wind farms, has told Boris Johnson, if you want to stay leader of the Conservative Party, mate, uh, if I were you, I wouldn't go down this wind farm road. And that's why they've backed off. Our energy policy is being held to
1: ransom by Tory backbenchers. Do you think that's a fair criticism, Natalie? Because obviously you mentioned nuclear, which is a big part of the strategy and very ambitious targets, as well as the overall target of 95% of low carbon energy sources by 2030, but onshore wind. It does look like Kwasi Kwarteng has watered down his ambitions. There were some leaked documents to the I newspaper that show they were going to go for much firmer targets. But it does feel as if it was politics, not the reality of what the UK's energy requirements are.
4: In fact, the Financial Times reported, I think it was at the start of last week, Kwasi Kwarteng's targets for different technologies, which did include a 30 gigawatt target for onshore wind and a firm target for solar power. Now, the government did express an ambition to increase solar power capacity by as much as fivefold, but you're absolutely right that onshore wind was missing. And government officials did suggest privately that yes, there had been some political testing in inverted commas of those targets and it didn't survive. Now onshore wind, the government's own polling shows that in general, the public is quite supportive of it. But officials admit that if you look at those surveys and that polling in, in greater detail, that generally communities that have been living closer to onshore wind farms are less supportive. So yes, there was no big target for onshore wind, which is one of the quickest and cheapest ways of increasing our domestic electricity generation capacity. It doesn't take very long to build as long as planning processes are uh, streamlined. Although it has to be said, of course, that onshore wind is only useful if the wind is blowing. And then, Obviously, the
1: government and Boris Johnson were very clear that this is a medium to long-term strategy. And as you said, there is real pain for households now. But I think Kwasi Kwartan did say this week that energy prices would come down naturally in the next couple of years as renewables become more affordable. What kind of things do you think the government could do? Because obviously, all these things are going to take years to build, not least the nuclear power plants and still these questions about funding them. But... Have you got any sense of what things could be used to plug the gap? Because the costs from the more traditional sources of oil and gas feel like they're not going down anytime soon.
4: No, and if if you look at forecasts for the energy price cap, which dictates bills for 22 million plus households in Britain, so the majority of households, you will see that there are forecasts that the price cap could stay around £2,000 a year per household well into 2023. It's expected to increase, as as I mentioned earlier in October, but it will remain high even into 2023. Now, energy groups have been, since the back end of last year, because let's not forget that wholesale electricity and gas prices were high even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they were putting forward various proposals to try and decrease the pressure on households. For example, reducing the rate of value-added tax on energy bills, moving these so-called green levies, surcharges on energy bills that pay for policies such as supporting renewable energy generation and and helping the most vulnerable with discounts on their bills, those could potentially be moved into general taxation. So when you get your bill, it just doesn't look, you know, it's sort of 160 pounds or so less. Although, That would create an issue for the Chancellor if it was moved into general taxation. There'd be a question of whether he would have to put taxes up. There's also been various loan schemes that have been mooted. The government could lend money to the suppliers to help them offer further discounts to households. And the pressure is really building on the Chancellor to again... Look at these, some of these solutions, and think about what more could be done in time for October when the energy price cap is expected to go up by at least £600 per household again.
1: Stephen and Natalie, thank you very much. After much back and forth, the Johnson government has decided to push ahead with privatising Channel 4. After much internal Tory debate over almost several decades about the role of the eclectic broadcaster, it will go from public to private hands, assuming legislation passes the House of Commons in the coming years. Nadine Dorries, the Culture Secretary, set out why the changing media landscape means it needs a new ownership structure.
4: I think it's right that um, a
5: public service broadcaster... um, In the rapidly changing digital environment that we're in at the moment, I think the future and the longevity of that broadcaster should be brought into question and should be, particularly when it's a receipt of taxpayers' money.
1: Well, that's not exactly correct. Channel 4 doesn't receive public money, as Dorothy Byrne, the former head of Channel 4 News, pointed out when she spoke to the BBC about the privatisation, warning it risks what the station is about.
5: Here is the problem with Nadine Doris, that she doesn't know very much about the broadcasting sector. Channel 4 is the biggest free-to-air digital service in this country, and it is massively used by young people. So Channel 4 is changing and needs to keep changing, but privatising it is not
1: the way to help. Well, Alex Barker, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you on. I think in a new guise since you were last on from Brussels many years ago during the lovely Brexit wars. Now give us the backdrop. Why is the government A, doing this full stop and B, why is it doing it now? Is it about pragmatism as Nadine Doris would say or is it more about what Dorothy Byrne was arguing? It's a bit about ideology.
2: There's a lively debate over whether this is the sixth or seventh time that they've tried to privatise Channel 4 over the years. This is 30 years of score settling going on about a broadcaster that hasn't tapped the public purse to keep its operations going, but has been backstopped by the government all that time. The government are its owners, it sets its remit, it sets its functions. And the problem for Channel 4 at the moment, like all free-to-air broadcasters, is... Uh, the model's changing. There's a massive revolution going on in how people are watching. And regardless of its ownership, Channel 4 would be going through a period of rethinking what it has to do. And it is doing, offering a digital platform for people to watch. And that's a big thing. It costs a lot of money. And the other thing about Channel 4 that is unique is it doesn't make its own shows. And it doesn't keep the IP of the shows it commissions. It, It means it's harder to buy in shows because everyone else is keeping their stuff for their own platforms, right? So it's harder for them to get content. It's harder for them to to maintain the ad ad revenue in the old business. So they've got to change. The question is, is privatization the way to do that? Because looking at this business, which is 10% of audience in the UK, but not a huge business to scale worldwide into a big streaming service. And the kind of people that might want to buy this are either ITV, because they'd like to corner the ad market in the UK, or, you know, private equity types who want to see it it as a declining asset and run it off for cash. And the ideological question is, what do you want this channel to be? Is it a public service broadcaster that is worth backstopping
1: or Should it just be let loose? Well, Janine Gibson, as a former media editor of The Guardian, you will have followed, as Alex said, these 30 years of debate about Channel 4. And I think Charles Moore wrote in The Spectator this week that Margaret Thatcher had wanted to privatise Channel 4. And there is this general sense in Westminster that this is about ideology because Channel 4, particularly its news coverage, is seen by many Conservatives as maybe towards left-leaning, obviously not particularly enthusiastic about Brexit. And the Tories obviously have now got this big majority. They've got control of many of the UK's institutions. So they want to use this to essentially wreak revenge as Julian Knight, chair of the Digital Culture Media Sports Select Committee. Do you think that's right? Or do you think it is more about this changing media landscape?
5: Interestingly, the first, I don't know, five or six attempts were largely the executive of a very successful channel, an extraordinarily successful channel, trying to put together a management buyout in order to make a ton of money. So the context for this attempt is very different. We've had potential tie-ups with the BBC and with ITV and Channel 5 before now. This is the first time it's had this sort of punitive flavor to it. And I think it is punitive. There's no reason to do it. It made money last year. In fact, it made more money last year than it has in previous years. So, you know, it's nowhere near bankruptcy status. It's got a very expensive piece of real estate in which it sits, which it wholly owns, very nice bit of Westminster. And it is doing sort of just fine. I think the government is confused and deliberately confuses in, in these arguments. Its role in making Channel 4 successful from its role in providing a platform that allows access for, you know, n hundred of independent producers to the airwaves. It's not the government's job to decide whether or not Channel Four is is strong enough or successful enough. It's the individual executives at any given time to set the strategy. It's a very mysterious attempt. There's no crisis. So somebody said yesterday it's a, it's a, a solution to which there is no question. Tell people are very bright. You see, they won't they won't let you get away with it without making you look stupid. So, so therefore, everybody is left with the, well, is this really about the fact that they put a sculpture of Boris Johnson made of ice up in front of the, you know, a debate in the last election? Could it be really that petty? And frankly, you know, it's hard to think of another answer, unless it is the odd, and I do hate these galaxy brain takes around the old dead cat, almost every time someone says dead cat, you think you've lost the argument. But you know, Party gate is around, and then suddenly we decide to privatize Channel 4. They did a consultation for almost a year last year, tens of thousands of responses, 90 percent of which were against it. It is a policy that it actually unites everyone. nobody wants it. it. you know from either side of the political spectrum, everyone is baffled. it will probably cost money. I saw some figures yesterday saying it would cost three billion and it's definitely not going to raise billion
1: now Alex. When you pull this back about Channel 4, this follows a bit of a pattern, though, of things the government has done since it came in in 2019. And it's not just Channel 4. There's obviously been the so-called war on the BBC, which I think was at its zenith when Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane were in Downing Street and they cut ministers out of the Today programme, out of Newsnight, and were pushing them towards more private sector competitors like Times Radio or Talk Radio or whatever it may be. But it is interesting the way that the Department for Culture, Media and Sport is being used to sort of wage what some people call this culture war. And it's obviously not just Channel 4. We've seen recently the appointment of Lord Michael Grade as the head of Ofcom, who's a conservative peer. They tried to get Lord Dacre from the Daily Mail in there, George Osborne, the former Conservative Chancellor at the British Museum. And in a way, it's a sort of march through the institutions to push them in a more conservative-leaning direction.
2: To survive, you need to raise money and you need to be able to borrow, and you want to take Channel 4 to the world, and that requires investment. And that is a legitimate thing to be talking about. But in the context of all the things you were explaining, it doesn't seem to me like that actually is at the top of the minds of the government right now, because the context to it is this slow march through the cultural institution of the country to repopulate boards with more conservative... Tory-minded folk, that Labour did it in their own way, but never quite as systematically, with sometimes the occasionally the type of venom. And this fits that pattern and is certainly probably the biggest scalp that would be possible for them to get in this parliament. And there had to be a decision made around Channel 4, which wasn't just, do we want to do this? But what are we going to give up to do it? You have to clear legislative time. This a billion quid, if they do raise it off a sale like this, for the Treasury is going to be... Negligible. So this was about politics first and foremost.
1: What do you mean? if I was sitting here with a Conservative minister opposite, they would be arguing that they are simply redressing the balance of our institutions. They would point out during the 13 years Labour was in power, they stacked institutions with their friends and allies of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And they might argue that when David Cameron was in power, they felt they didn't go quite far enough. And the fact they've got this 80-seat majority means they've got a mandate to try and reshape things and do it in their own way. So is this just normal politics, the kind of things you see, or is it going further than that? And is this part of this so-called wider culture war issue? I don't disagree,
5: by the way, with the notion that you just propounded from your fictional Conservative minister. The last Labour government was powered for a very long time. And this sort of narrative of Powell, who was at university with blah, 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 has now been handed blah, blah, blah it isn't a new narrative. That happened all the time and often involves many of your most prized cultural institutions. I think what has been divisive and sort of inflammatory about the way this this government has approached it is partly the old wounds of Brexit and the splits within the Tory party itself, which narrows your pool. And secondly, there's a sort of showy, I don't care about the way these these appointments are sold in the papers, you know. So some people drop in Charles Moore as chairman of the BBC.
1: That's Charles Moore, former editor of The Telegraph.
5: Probably in a Telegraph splash, unless um, it's sort of fester for six months with people going, this is a man who's been actively refusing to pay his licence fee since 1982. What on earth? You know, there's no pretense of middle ground there. Similarly with Paul Dacre at Ofcom. These are people who, who, who sort of rabidly profess themselves against the very institutions they are being proposed for. Now, of course, we've ended up in a place where Richard Sharp, who's the chairman of the BBC, seems to be the sort of perfectly able banking type figure who's always chaired the BBC under any government. And Michael Grade as a uh, head of Ofcom, you know, I can't remember the last time I knowingly agreed with Michael Grade, but he's perfectly qualified to do that job. You can't help feeling that it is designed to cause uh, a lot of heat and light. And then in the end, I'd like to say, you know, sense prevails. But it just in the case of Channel 4, though, it's so binary. If you sell it, that's it. It's not, you know, you can't re nationalise it, really, not, not in any meaningful sense. And I would just note that the night before this very important policy was tweeted at seven o'clock at night, the night before, Nadine Doris had tweeted about her profound need to do something about ownership rules in British football clubs, English football clubs, these great institutions which have an enormous impact on our cultural lives. I'm not really sure why. It should be more worrying that we've sold our football clubs to whoever the highest bidder than it should be broadcasters.
1: Alex, moving on from just the issues around culture and the department there, there's also this general sense the government is pushing other cultural issues that we heard Boris Johnson discussing the sensitive topic of trans rights this week when he came out and said that biological males shouldn't be competing in female sports. And there's a feeling that the Tories are going to use this in the run-up to the next election. And these cultural issues will become front and centre, not least because it introduces this element of danger for voting Labour, which has obviously been removed by the fact Jeremy Corbyn, who was a very left-leaning leader of the Labour Party. The Tories argued in 2019 that if you voted for him, he'd introduce these radical policies, plus would endanger Brexit. Whereas that's now gone with Sir Keir Starmer, a much more moderate leader of Labour. So by introducing these sensitive cultural issues, it tried to put a divide between where the Tories are and where Labour stands. I mean, you'll
2: know the politics better than me, Sir, but, you know, it does seem... Like we're at a moment where the Tory party feels like more of a cultural coalition than it does an economic one or a geographic one. And so wedge issues like this are incredibly useful for drawing the boundaries that you want to kind of shepherd your flock in. And for the you know election, which is not in too far away, these kind of topics are exactly the thing that the Tory party will want to be talking about rather than the tax burden or the cost of, the living. Cost of living or all the other promises that were made and for, you know, these extraordinary times have, have made a lot of them impossible to deliver. And culture is a lot cheaper to talk about.
1: And finally, briefly, last word to Eugene on that. Do you think this idea of pushing cultural issues will work? Well, this government is um, very good at
5: doing lots and lots of opinion polls and making sure that when they pronounce on things that they uh, they sound like the voice of common sense because they've already pre-checked what the voice of common sense is. And yet they do a lot of U-turns. So I'm not sure that we'll be able to tell what the government thinks about Channel 4 in six months.
1: Let's put it that way. Well, Alex and Janine thank you very much and that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics if you enjoyed it then we'd recommend subscribing you can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released and while you're at it you can leave us a nice review and a positive rating and finally, before we go, we have something new to tell you about. If you're fed up with doom scrolling, I certainly am, and searching through endless new feeds, then the FT has launched a new iPhone app to help you read less and understand more. FT Edit features eight pieces of our in-depth journalism a day, handpicked by our top editors to inform, explain, and surprise. It's available now for iPhone users. Just search FT Edit on the App Store. Your first month is free, and it is 99p a month for six months after that. We think it's worth your time and not just because it's Janine's project. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening.